Today's episode of Dog Nation Daily is brought to you by Engineered Solutions of Georgia. Dial 678-ESOG now for a solution to your foundation and waterproofing problems. Presented by DogNation.com, this is Dog Nation Daily, the daily podcast for Georgia Bulldogs fans. Here's your host, Brandon Adams. A lot of you know I've grown up here in the uh, state of Georgia, kind of in the Atlanta area. I grew up in Hall County. That was kind of the country back when I was growing up there. It's a little bit more of a, you know, sort of a suburb now. It's just kind of amazing how the Atlanta growth has sort of turned what used to be sort of the country into sort of a suburb, but that's kind of why that is there in Hall County where I grew up and obviously grew up a huge Georgia fan. But in addition to that, I liked all the local teams, you know, fan of the professional sports teams from Atlanta, big Braves fan now, uh, of course, and, you know, was back then there too. But I also liked the Atlanta Hawks back then. I'm not a huge NBA fan as much anymore. I still kind of follow the league a little bit. But when I was a kid, a big Hawks fan, you know, in the 80s, that's when I was a child. That's when Dominique Wilkins was there. Big fan of the Atlanta Hawks. And it's kind of weird, you know, if we admit something here, you know, the Hawks have never quite had the same level of, uh, prestige or accomplishment some other nba franchises have you know in recent years they have been, i guess been to the eastern conference finals a couple of times so you might even say the atlanta portion of that franchise's history those are the top moments in the history of the franchise since it's been in atlanta but when i was a kid they didn't have that they had not been to the eastern conference finals in atlanta i don't guess and really the best moment in the franchise might have been a loss in the 1988 playoffs game seven to Larry Bird and the Boston Celtics and as weird as that sounds that was kind of like the thing that everybody sort of remembered about the Hawks at the time they almost beat the Celtics that that a loss was actually a, a fond memory even so much so that you know you want to go back you know 20 years or so ago this is sort of like maybe pre-YouTube being as big and popular as it is now there used to be a show on the NBA network NBA TV called Hardwood Classics they would show old games and every time they would show like that Celtics Hawk series from 1988, I'd almost always watch it because it's one of those weird things where even though Atlanta lost the series, uh, it still was like an almost win. They could have won it. They were almost relevant. It's like kind of one of those things that you sort of looked back on fondly, uh, even though it was actually kind of a bad moment for your team. And I guess that's my purpose for saying all of that, that as a sports fan, you're a sports fan too. We kind of understand this together, that sometimes in sports, a bad moment can actually be a good memory. As I said before, Hawks lost to the Celtics, but this is Dominique Wilkins on the biggest stage, kind of putting Atlanta on the map against the very relevant Boston Celtics. And Atlanta, by almost winning that series, almost became relevant. And it's sort of funny and silly as it is to say, that's about as close as we had to anything worth cheering for back then for that particular team. And really at that time, and in Atlanta sports kind of in general, we just didn't have a lot of success. So Atlanta almost beating the Celtics, was as bad as good as we had it was a bad moment lost the series but it's kind of a good memory because it was as close to success as we probably got during that tenure of Atlanta professional sports history back in the 1980s and all of that is sort of a setup for this that if you're a Georgia fan right now you've got to understand that a lot of the sports fans around you college football fans around you they sort of view their favorite team in kind of the same fashion and maybe if you're like me and you grew up, uh, you know, as a, an Atlanta sports fan here in the state of Georgia, where you are sort of hoping yourself to be relevant, now that you're a fan of the Georgia Bulldogs, the two-time reigning national champs, the favorites to win a third, all of a sudden now you've enjoyed and sort of conquered a level of relevance that the rest of college football is is only can only be jealous of. 
that you have to sort of see the world sometimes from the way they view things, and it's going to be a little bit confusing. And what you have to realize is, is that sometimes, much the same way way back when I was a kid, just being close to the Boston Celtics was kind of a big deal. There is a certain stripe of college football fan, maybe even college football program, that's going to view just being close to Georgia as kind of a big deal. That it's actually a good memory, even though it was a bad outcome for them. They may have lost a game, but just being close to Georgia is the kind of thing that maybe one day they'll sort of tell their kids about. And I'm not trying to say this in like a snarky sarcastic way i'm actually being as straightforward as i guess i'm capable of being like if you're a missouri fan and you happen to be in uh, como uh this past fall for that game in which missouri almost beat georgia if you're a missouri fan is that a good memory or a bad memory for most missouri fans i'm guessing it's probably a good memory this environment was loud it was rocking a lot of good things happen it's exciting it's about as close to success as missouri is ever going to come at least in this day and age and even though it was heartbreaking at the end for tigers fans they lost the game I'm guessing a lot of Missouri fans are like, hey, we kept it close against Georgia. High five. That's that's more than we thought we were probably capable of doing. And maybe that's somewhat easy to understand when it's a Missouri who's doing that. But believe it or not, that same mindset might exist for teams who are a little higher up the food chain than that. Like a lot of us think of Ohio State as a power. This is a team that's traditionally in the top two or three of recruiting. They are traditionally in the top two or three of the preseason rankings. Even if they kind of disappoint and fall short of those aspirations during the year, this is a team that's mentioned frequently among college football's blue bloods. They have won a national championship in the college football playoff era back in 2014. This is a team that we sort of think of on a stature, I should say stature, similar to Georgia. And yet, Ohio State has also lost to Michigan the last couple of years. Uh, you know, they seemingly have had a hard time living up to the expectations the fans have for the program. And prior to this year's college football playoff, there was a little bit of, a, I think, a negative vibe around the Buckeyes here a little bit. And the game against Georgia, in which Ohio State played it close, all of a sudden, that seems to be one of those things that Ohio State fans seem to want to relive as much as they possibly can. And for fans, you would certainly understand that being the case. But what's also been a little bit weird is, is that Ohio State coach Ryan Day has seemingly also taken on the same mindset mentality of a fan in that he seems to want to go back and relive the Peach Bowl over and over and over again, even though that's a game that his team lost. And as many of you are aware, Day's way of doing this is by going back and kind of, you know, I guess re-traumatizing himself about the play late in the game in which Javon Bullard made a good defensive play in the back of the end zone against Marvin Harrison Jr. We hate the fact that Harrison got injured on that. You, you never want to see that. And, you know, no player get hurt at any point in time. But Bullard's got nothing to apologize for. He's just playing good football. He's trying to separate a receiver from the football. That's what physical football teams do. Bullard, obviously, a very physical player. But Harrison Jr. did get hurt on that. Day, who's you know the old line that Jim Harbaugh made famous about being born on third base and thinking he hit a triple day who's been given everything that his career's ever had gifted a job at Ohio State done very little with that you know gifted everything that he's ever had apparently expected to be gifted something by the officials too a targeting call that could keep that drive alive for the Buckeyes ultimately he didn't get it and as many of you know he has been whining about it throughout the entirety of of the offseason, including recently on an interview that I was made aware of. Many of you shared this with me. It's kind of funny. Uh, sometimes we're all on kind of the same wavelength here. 
day recently with the college football analyst joel klatt now klatt's the one who asks him the question here so it's not like day brings this up unsolicited but at the same time day also seems to be more than happy to talk about this particular subject the idea that the call on the field was targeting uh and eventually that was overturned by the uh, instant replay process and ryan day's point on all this apparently is is that this just goes to show you what's wrong with the instant replay process that it didn't up, uh, uphold the targeting that he's sure he saw between javon bullard and marvin harrison jr it, it is amazing the fact that day after all of these many months is still talking about this this is what ryan day recently told joel clad about that targeting call that he thinks should have taken place for javon bullard against marvin harrison jr and that dastardly instant replay process that took this away here is ryan day we're getting so much into the weeds on this that we've lost where we started on it and what was the reason why we did this to protect young men Mm -hmm. and so you know if someone's launching at somebody's head and they're unconscious on the ground that's not what we want here and so i think sometimes you know we get into these slow motion things and we start to get so you know caught up in the little details of everything and it's not realistic sometimes watching it in slow motion so I think there has to be some sort of a common sense. I think we have to still trust the referees on the field and what they see. They're there for a reason. And then if it's egregious, you know, one way or the other, then that's where this, the instant replay comes into play. But I think right now what we've done is we've just put so much into the instant replay mm-hmm. that what you see in you know, a slow frame isn't really what's going on in the field. And uh, we have to go back to the common sense and why the rule is even put into place. So I try not to be preachy on this show because I don't think people like that. But if I were going to be preachy, here's something I might say that nothing sort of (laughs) I think speaks to like modern times more so than Ryan Day, who's like, in my feelings, this is supposed to be targeting. My truth is this is supposed to be targeting. And the instant replay, when you actually go back and watch the instant replay, it actually demonstrates that it was a clean hit by Bullard. It was contact below the shoulder. It's just good football. Yet that doesn't align with my feelings. And my feelings need to be respected more so than the fact pattern here that what Javon Bullard actually did was a good football. And so therefore, since the instant replay demonstrates something that actually runs counter to my feelings, therefore we shouldn't have instant replay whatsoever if i was going to be preachy i might kind of point the uh hypocrisy out and all of that now the truth is i'm not a huge fan of instant replay either so you know maybe in some respects i guess ryan day and i aren't completely uh at odds on all of this but there's just nothing that's sort of less you know conduct uh, you know more sort of conduct unbecoming than the idea that ryan day is still sort of whining about this play between bullard and marvin harrison jr and the fact that day has now decided he hates since he hate instant replay because instant replay doesn't validate his feelings that's just something very beta about all of that i think most of us i i think would probably agree and it leads to a fairly you know honest question of how come Ryan Day is still doing this? After all these months, how come he is still harping on the same issue, the same play for a game that his team lost? How come he's not shaking that off and being willing to look the future? And honestly, here's what I believe. I believe it's for the exact reasons that I described before. Ohio State losing to Georgia from the sort of textbook standpoint is sort of a bad thing. But in a weird way, I think that's actually a good memory for Ryan Day. I think he revisits this topic because I think he actually likes it. I think actually, and this is where if you're a Georgia fan, you've got to get acquainted with the current age in which we live in, that Ohio State fans actually think it was good their team played Georgia close, whereas we would assume that Ohio State fans would only be willing to tolerate a win. The truth is, is that Ohio State fans 
think of Georgia on such a high stature, the fact that Ohio State even kept it close with Georgia is something they actually kind of brag about. Hey, if it wasn't for this targeting call in their mind that they think should have taken place or whatever else, maybe we could have won the game. If our kicker hadn't kicked it sideways, maybe we could have won the game. And Ohio State fans, much like Hawks fans back in the 1980s, are all of a sudden bragging about a game in which they lost because this is as close as they're going to come to being relevant. And if you're Ryan Day, who's, you know, uh, nothing if not, you know, sort of a, I guess, uh, self-preservationist, much better to talk about almost beating Georgia than it is to talk about getting dragged by Michigan in consecutive years. And there's almost like a sort of a cynical strategy behind all of this of if I can get people mad at the referees in the Peach Bowl, that takes the attention away from the fact that I've lost to Michigan these past two years, that 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 Ryan Day is interested in revisiting this topic because I honestly think he must think it helps him to talk about how close Ohio State came to beating Georgia. And that is just a very weird world for a Georgia fan to live in. It is evidence of the fact that you have distanced yourself or the team has distanced itself from the rest of college football so much that all of a sudden now Ohio State, who we think of as, I mean, somewhat of an equal, right? I mean, you think of Ohio State as sort of a fair fight. This is a team that plays in the same plane as Georgia does, yet they're still bragging about keeping it close against UGA. And Michigan, who's... I mean, you know, we grew up thinking about Michigan being one of the biggest brands in all of college football. They have the supposed beat Georgia period during practice because it is so aspirational in their mind to even be on the same field as Georgia that that's like their example of sort of shooting for the moon during practice. These are very weird times that Georgia fans live in, that Georgia has conquered college football so much that the behavior of those who are trying to compete with Georgia has actually kind of gotten a little bit strange. Ohio State bragging about a game in which they lost or or, or wanting to relive the moments in that game quite so much, I think sort of speaks to uh, just how cool they think it was. They actually kept it close against a team that really no longer plays it close against anybody. You know, Michigan, who uh, we would have think of as one of the biggest programs all of college football, have been kind of reduced to hoping and dreaming and wishing to beat Georgia during practice. That if you're a Georgia fan, this is a little bit new. It's a little bit different, but it sort of speaks to where the dogs are right now. And it also sort of speaks to the challenge that exists here in 2023. If you're Kirby Smart, if you're these Georgia players and you're everything else, sort of making sure you stay right there. The success that Georgia has had has made the programs competing with Georgia act very strange, very weird. And for a lot of us, this is pretty entertaining to see. My name is Brandon Adams, and this is Dog Nation Daily, the daily podcast for Georgia Bulldogs fans presented today by Engineered Solutions of Georgia. And we are happy to have you with us no matter how you get to us today live on video, 10 a.m., Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Twitch. We start even earlier than that, 945, first and 15, dognation.com, and on the Dog Nation app. And, of course, on the radio at noon, Athens Sports Radio 960, the ref, as a podcast, wherever you find them, including the world-famous dognation.com. Uh, just lots of ways for you to make the show a, a part of your life and we just appreciate you picking one of those platforms and using it and hopefully it works well for you we're just really really thankful that you're a part of what we're doing here and we are so grateful to our friends and engineered solutions of georgia who make it all possible there as well good partners of ours longtime friends we love the support we have from them and we are so grateful to help tell their story because we know the work they're doing for people out there in our audience they've been trusted by uga they're proud partners of uga that means when you support engineered solutions of georgia You're also supporting a company that has supported the dogs for a long time. And when it comes to taking good care of your home, Engineered Solutions of Georgia is a very important resource for you because one of the greatest threats to your home, threatening the structural integrity of that home, 
foundation waterproofing issues. You know the signs of this. The water stuff is easy to see, right? When it rains, water is where it's not supposed to be. Wet spots, garage, down in the basement. Sometimes that's even like a standing water type situation. Crawl space, you know all of that. And the same thing is true for some of those cracks in the walls too. You see that sort of stair step looking crack in the brick sometimes, or those sort of horizontal looking cracks in the sheetrock, something like that. Y'all, that is a sign that ought to be a trigger to you that, oh yeah, when I see this, BA said, engineered solutions of georgia go ahead and make that call and sometimes it's easy to want to put this off and not know what's going on but nothing good comes from waiting nothing good comes from from putting off what could be done right now uh, because let's face it engineered solutions of georgia is a solutions-based company that means if it's a simple fix they'll be able to describe what you need to go out and do maybe it's trip to the hardware store one little thing can take care of what you need but if it's more substantial work all the more reason to have ESOG on the job because they have an entire team of engineers on staff to help you. That is what they are all about. Uh, they've also got uh, an incredible uh, fully transferable triple protection warranty on materials, installation, and design there as well. So give them a call. 678-ESOG now. That is 678-ESOG now. Have a conversation with our friends at Engineered Solutions of Georgia today. All right. Uh, fun conversation with us coming up with Connor Riley here in a couple of minutes. A lot to get to with him. A lot of that's going to center on UJ recruiting and some of the stuff that's gone on as of late and some of the stuff that may go on here over the course of the next couple of months. Really more like next few weeks, I guess. Probably the better way to say that. We'll do that with Connor Riley here coming up in a couple of minutes' time. Prior to that, let's go around the doghouse here today. And we got some information yesterday, which I guess is not unexpected. I feel like this would have – I think we made some guesses about who you know it might be. Uh, I think I got two of the three right. Georgia's going to send three players, as every SEC team will, to SEC Media Days uh, next week. And we know now for Georgia, Cedric Von Prawn Granger, Brock Bowers, and Kamari Lassiter are going to go. The two that I believe I got right were Bowers and SVP. I think those are the easiest to select. Lassiter, I knew would be a candidate. I thought that Georgia might send a different defensive player, but they're sending Kamari Lassiter instead. And I think, A, I think that Georgia has picked a very good trio here. I think all three of these guys will do an, a very effective job of being spokesmen for the program. I mean, SVP coming back. I think has probably been the most under-discussed part of the offseason here thus far for Georgia, that this is a guy who could have gone to the NFL draft, you know, as, as a center, probably wouldn't have been a first-round pick, but would he have been a very attractive draft prospect if he wanted to leave? I believe he possibly uh, uh, could have been. Coming back, I think he puts himself in the position to be among the very best centers in the country and an anchor once again for an offensive line that I believe will be the very best in the entire country. Now, would Georgia have still been successful along the offensive line at SVP not come back? Odds are it probably would have been. They've got a good bit of program depth here, but it's just a very different story. If if SVP had not come back, I think you can make a case that the second biggest on-field story for Georgia would be who the new center was going to be for 2023. Quarterback would have been the biggest story no matter what, probably. But just beyond that, I believe if SVP had not come back, breaking in a new center and the importance of that and that that sort of center quarterback comfort the way in which a center kind of becomes the focal point for the offensive line 
if if Van Pran was not coming back for Georgia, that's a conversation that rightly would have dominated much of the offseason. With him coming back, it's simply a matter of just continuing the continuity that you've enjoyed, and that's why the Georgia offensive line, I believe, is set up to be as good as it's going to be here this year. So good to have him here at SEC Media Day. It's probably an easy assumption to make that he would be here. I think Brock Bowers, for me, is is a little bit of a similar theme in that Bowers is one of the very best players in the entire country. Easy to assume that Georgia would want to take him. And when possible, I think every SEC team should do this. You know, you get a choice of like who you send to SEC media days. And if you're attending media days as like a reporter from Louisiana or, you know, Arkansas or somewhere like that, you know, Bowers is the guy you want to talk to. And I do believe that SEC media days, when it can be, ought to be a platform and a springboard for these very good players to kind of get some more national attention. Now, there are some good players who do not like talking to me. They're very, very shy. They, uh, it's just a miserable experience for them. And I'm not exactly looking to torture them, but making them come to SEC Media Days. But the event itself ought to be a platform for the very best players in the league. So from that standpoint, I think it's good that Georgia's sending Bowers. I think this ought to be a season in which, you know, from a PR standpoint, Brock Bowers is introduced to the country in a way that he has not quite been as of yet. I still think now Bowers did win the Mackey Award a year ago. So uh, after not even being a finalist of the award in 2021, I guess he's getting more attention now. But we believe that Brock's one of the very best players in the entire country. I think he could be a top 10 pick in the upcoming draft. I saw some the other day kind of compare him to Kyle Pitts. Pitts was a top five pick. So I think the the positioning that Bowers could have in next year's NFL draft is is really very high. And so therefore, you know, this is a guy who ought to rightly be treated as one of the very best players in college football here this year. And it's going to take some more attention from the media on him to get that to be true, to get that story told correctly. And so having him at SEC Media Days, I think, is the right thing to do here. I'm glad he's going to be there. Kamari Laster is one of several defensive players that Georgia could have sent here. I think he's going to be a, a, a very good choice for Georgia. But beyond that, I think it also sends a little bit of a signal maybe to the rest of us, of just how important Laster may be to this year's defense, that that you're looking at Georgia kind of graduating some players to larger roles here this season. Laster was a starter for Georgia a year ago, but now he kind of becomes the, the, the cornerback who may have you know, to the extent this is, you know, how Georgia chooses to play it, like the additional responsibility, the, the the cornerback is sort of the leader of that group, the cornerback who, you know, gets a chance to to be sort of the lockdown guy for Georgia here this year. And frankly, one of those guys, and we say this all the time, that you got to have about a half dozen sort of first team all SEC type players. You've got to have, you know, you know, guys who are really kind of putting themselves at the forefront of the conversation of very best players in the SEC, very best players in the country. And that means at a place like Georgia, at the beginning of the season, you have candidates looking to emerge. Well, there's no doubt in my mind now, it's been true for a while, and this just validates it, that Kamari Laster is one of those candidates that's really going to emerge on the scene for Georgia. So he can stay healthy, emerge for Georgia on the scene over the course of the season. And for the particular event of SEC Media Days, we also know he's likely to be a very good spokesman for Georgia there as well because of some of the stuff he said in the past, including remember back in the spring when there was all this talk about Georgia, I guess, modeling itself after a famous uh, rugby team and, you know, kind of like the leadership lessons kind of taken from a successful team from a different sport and, you know, kind of how Georgia can kind of adopt that themselves. And one of the phrases that Kirby Smart was using at the time was the idea of eating off the floor. And I think Kirby sort of meant that from a sort of a humble standpoint of, you know, are you hungry enough to do whatever it takes? Are you hungry enough to eat off the floor or do you think you've kind of arrived and, 
you know, you should be fed caviar and lobster and steak and things like that. And Kamari Laster also had his own explanation for what kind of Kirby meant when he sort of talked about a team mantra of eating off the floor. And it's words like this from Laster, one of the reasons why he was selected to be a part of SEC Media Days. This is what Kamari said. Eating off the floor is just a mentality like you um you're not too big for anything. You're not too big to do the little things right. You're not too big to do the things that got you to where you are. So, I mean, just going in and approaching every day, like I said, like it's your last day, you know, giving your best at every opportunity you have. What's the, the motivation? And, and I know that Coach Smart is a master motivator, and last year he had a lot of you guys sold on, apparently, nobody thought you were going to be good or something he said, which couldn't be for the truth, by the way. But, but now everybody thinks you're going to be good. You're, you're going to be a preseason number one to – to make history as a three-peat. So where do you feel like the team has drawn some inspiration here? Or is there still a chip on the shoulder? Like, what do you think collectively the team is motivated by this offseason? I think we're motivated by just, you know, not getting complacent, not um, not trying to stay stagnant. You know, if we stay stagnant, then people will catch up to us. And then if people catch up to you, you're eventually going to get beat. And um, just to, just to not wanting to lose, you know, we, at Georgia, we want to win every game. We want to win against everybody we play. So, I mean, just – the will to win is what's, what's keeping us going, is what's motivating us. As everybody knows, they're kind of competing agendas at SEC Media Days. The media who's there, they want the players to say interesting things. Sometimes the coaches want the players to properly express the mantra for the upcoming season and kind of cast the right vision for how the team is expected to perform for the upcoming year. Obviously, that's why Kirby selects the players that he selects. And when you hear Kamari Laster speaking right there, it's fairly obvious that Laster seems to get the picture for what Georgia wants, what Georgia can accomplish this year, and the path that the program needs to travel in order to be able to get that done. That is around the doghouse here today on Dog Nation Daily, presented by Engineered Solutions of Georgia. And before we are done on today's program, there are a couple of pretty interesting recruiting notes that I want to get to. In fact, there's a story out there that has nothing to do with UGA that seemingly has gotten some Georgia fans kind of thinking out loud a little bit about UGA recruiting. We'll tell you exactly why that is here coming up in just a moment. Also, a major Georgia recruiting target has gotten a little bit of a boost here as of late that once again, I guess, kind of reemphasizes exactly why the dogs are chasing him as hard as they are right now. So there are a couple of major pieces of recruiting news to get to here before we're done on the program today, and we will do that. We will also laugh and have some fun at the expense of the lousy stinking gators because of a uh, moment of not quite so glorious uh, recent histories with florida gators that once again kind of re-emerged a, a little bit this week we'll tell you more details about that coming up today there as well and a very gold, very funny golden shoe on that topic here too so we got a lot to do before we were all said and done but for now on everything happening around Georgia football, getting ready for SEC media days, looking back on quite a run for the program uh, from a recruiting standpoint over the course of the last few days. Let's cover all of that ground and so much more with Dog Nation's Connor Riley here on Dog Nation Daily, presented by Engineered Solutions of Georgia. From Athens and across the SEC or wherever the recruiting trail may lead, here's a DogNation.com insider. So, lots to talk to Connor Riley about. Did not get a chance to speak to Connor last week. He was enjoying some vacation. Glad to have him back here today. And, Connor, let me bring you in on where I just was. 
three Georgia players selected to attend SEC Media Days next week. Cedric Von Prahn, Kamari Laster, Brock Bowers. I'd gotten two of these three right with my prediction. Uh, Laster was a candidate, of course. I, I, I maybe thought they would take a different defensive player, but I think that Laster's a fine choice. What did you make of the three guys that Georgia selected? And I guess what do you see as any kind of theme or message about this trio? Obviously, Cedric was here last year. Uh, he is the heartbeat of this team. He is, uh, you know, maybe not necessarily the loudest voice, but the voice that is most clearly heard by the members of this team. And saying all that, what he brings from a leadership standpoint, he's also, in my opinion, the best center in the country, and that's incredibly valuable. And, and he's obviously going to represent Georgia incredibly well. Brock Bowers is the best player in the SEC, and you know while he is not the most uh, engaging or entertaining interview, uh, it's important for him to be at these sort of events and sort of represent Georgia, and he will do so and will absolutely do, absolutely do so the right way. On the defensive side, I think you were right in the sense that there were a number of different ways they could have gone here. I think Zion Lowe would have been a very you know convincing choice there on the defensive line. Javon Buller is a guy that would represent this program well, and that they picked Kamari Lasseter. I think speaks to how highly the staff thinks of Kamari. And that's the guy, his story's been well documented before. Came in as one of the four non-early enrollees in that 2021 class, you know, when the pandemic was still somewhat going on. And, and really from the, from the moment he stepped on campus, this has been a guy that has been ahead of the curve and has really been pushing and pushing and pushing and getting better all the time. And, and last year, stepped in as a starter for the first time and really didn't hear much from him. And if you're playing the cornerback position, that's what you're looking for. Uh, opposing teams really would rather have gone after Keeler Ringo than Kamari Lasseter. I at least find that a little bit interesting. And with him coming back this season, with Georgia clearly seeing him as one of the leaders of this program, look, there's been a lot of really talented corners that Georgia has had over the years. DeAndre Baker, Eric Stokes, Tyson Campbell, Keeler Ringo. Uh, I, I think this Georgia staff thinks extremely highly of Lasseter and what he can bring to the table and what he means to this Georgia football team. Yeah, we're on the same page about that. We're on the same page about Van Praan as well. On the topic of the Brock Bowers thing here for a moment, this is sort of what I want every SEC team to do. And if you're, you know, you're a media member from Georgia there to visit the entire SEC, there'll be media members from Arkansas there to do the same thing. You know, we have a full kind of cross section of our region uh, who's going to be there in Nashville next week. And you know, I want Georgia to send uh, Brock Bowers. I want Alabama to send Dallas Turner. I want, you know, just pick whatever SEC team that you want. I want those guys sending their very best players. Now, I don't want to torture a guy that's shy and doesn't want to speak with the media at all, but when possible to put the very best players in the league on the stage of SEC Media Days, to me, Connor, this is what this event's supposed to be for. And I think there is still a little bit of a disconnect, certainly nationally, maybe even regionally a little bit, with how good Brock Bowers actually is because he does play on kind of an ensemble cast. Georgia has a lot of great players. Uh, Bowers' greatness, I believe, gets obscured. But when Georgia can give that a boost without, you know, rocking team chemistry, things like that, but when Georgia can give Bowers a little bit of a notoriety boost, I think they ought to do it. And so from that standpoint, I'm really glad that he's going. Yeah, uh not to, not to bring some movies into this, but Brock Bowers, to me, he's a little like an ensemble cast is a great word. I'm going to pull from it here. It's kind of like Leonardo DiCaprio in like The Departed or Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where in both of those movies, there are guys that are doing you know, louder performances and making more noise. And, and in that sense, you know, like Brock, he's not a super, you know, uh, I'm going to tell it like it is. I'm going to be super confident and I'm going to be super arrogant in an interview. He is very down to earth. That's just sort of how he is uh, unassuming, I think, would be a, a fair descriptor of him. But then 
you know, when the lights come on and it's time for him to do the thing and, and you sort of watch him work at his craft, you're kind of just blown away at, at just how good he is at what he does. And look, like Leonardo DiCaprio is probably the greatest actor of his generation. And I think Brock Bowers is certainly the greatest tight end of his generation. And when it's all said and done, not only do I think he can potentially be the best Georgia football player of his generation, but like if, if Georgia wins a national title, as they are currently favored to do so, and he is the best player on this offense, which he has for the last two years, and I would expect him to be so again with this third team, I mean, this is a guy who, you know, generational player gets thrown around quite a lot. Brock Bowers is hitting all the check marks to do that. And so I think you're largely right there in saying, you know, this is a guy that at least, well, yeah, he's not super engaging and whatnot, and he's not the greatest interview in the world, and I don't want to hammer him on that. That doesn't make you a good player. It doesn't make you a good person. Uh, I think it's important for him to get his face out there and for people to sort of see and understand that, like, you know, if Brock Bowers wasn't a football player, you probably just, look at him and see, oh, yeah, he's, like, he's a well-built, you know, average 20-year-old. And I think that's what makes Brock so special is that he's not a, a super physical specimen. He's not like a Kyle Pitts type or, or like a Darnell Washington type. But then, you know, he just sort of puts the pads on and he is better than every single football player that he has stepped on the field with. And I think that speaks to his brilliance, and I think that's a big reason why more people need to get to know why Brock Bowers is the way that Brock Bowers is. I don't want to belabor this point too much because there's other stuff to discuss, but think about this for next week just really, really quickly from a thought experiment standpoint. I think you and I both, and you take a little bit farther than I do, but I think you and I both have Brock Bowers on, like, say, the Mount Rushmore of Georgia football history here. I think he's the only player in the SEC currently that's on the Mount Rushmore for his program, so to speak, right? Like, like I think that he's the only current player in the SEC who can rightly be thought of to be one of the greatest program, one of the greatest players in that program's history. And so, from that standpoint, I hope that Bowers. I mean, Brock's going to hate it, but you know, sometimes it's what needs to happen. I hope that Brock is treated that way next week as not just a good player on a great team right now but a guy who actually sort of stands apart from almost any player that's come before him in program history in a way that I'm not quite so sure any other player in the SEC currently does. Right, and, and I'd maybe even go a step farther and say uh, I'm not sure there's a player in college football uh, that has sort of the same credentials that Brock does. And, and, you know, part of this is it's the position that he plays tight end. It is not, you know, a running back, a quarterback, uh, you know, great defensive player, things along like that. It, it is usually a position where – great transcendent players are few and far between us sort of the point of being a transcendent player. But, I, I, again, I think when you consider, look, Georgia's been the best team in college football the last two years. Georgia's best offensive player the last two years has been Brock Bowers. And, you know, like Jalen Carter's incredible. Jordan Davis had, had a sensational senior season at Georgia. I, I, you know, from a statistical standpoint, Brock Bowers had a bigger impact than both of those guys did over the course of the season. And, and so – to your point there, I, I just think that, you know, like, yeah, he doesn't have the mind-boggling numbers that say like a Marvin Harrison does because, again, Georgia gets up so big and, and they play a different way in the second half. But, you know, if you actually, not to be like I actually watch football, but if you actually watch these Georgia games, and Georgia fans certainly know and understand this, like, if Georgia wanted to, to roll up the numbers, like, Brock Bowers could get 2,000 yards in the season easily. I mean, he had 150 yards receiving one possession into the third quarter of the national championship game. Uh, this is a guy that can do it all. Georgia just chooses not to, and Brock, to his credit, doesn't demand to be used that way because he knows, you know, as nice as those big round statistical numbers are, winning championships are what is far more important to him, and he's been able to do that and lead Georgia to uh, two championships in the first two seasons. And, you know, 
I'm working on a story on Brock, and I didn't want to give a whole lot away. But his season, both his freshman and sophomore seasons, have ended the exact same way. His final catch of the season has been a touchdown catch in the second half of the national championship game. Uh, that's just such a unique thing to, to have happen once, let alone twice in his career. And it speaks to sort of just how unique of a player and a person that Georgia has in Brock Parrish. Uh, shifting gears here a little bit, uh, that's a really good point, Connor. That sounds like it's going to be a great story. Uh, and thank you for giving away some of it for free here on Dog Nation Daily, first and foremost. We obviously appreciate that, of course. Um, but shifting gears here just a little bit, I talked yesterday about the run of success that Georgia's had with its offensive line recruiting. I know you've written about this at dognation.com. I think a lot about this is fascinating. But first and foremost, Connor, you know, I think that what Georgia did, keeping in mind the fact that last year there's only one team in the SEC that even signed four four-star offensive linemen, the idea that Georgia got four commitments from guys like that over the span of about nine days, to me, that run of success, given how much of a position of need that could be for Georgia on the field in 2024, Connor, I believe that's just as impressive as securing the commitment from Dylan Riola. And when you look at how much the offensive line has played into the success that Georgia's had over the course of the last few years, I don't believe that can be undersold. The fact that Stacey Serrells is just laying waste to his competition here right now, and I think he is rightly getting the credit for doing so. Yeah, I think the big point you touch on there is that when you look at Kirby Smart's time at Georgia, the best teams have always had a great offensive line. You know, the biggest difference from the 2016 team to the 2017 was just how much better that offensive line was in that 2017 season. You know, last year, yeah, they lose eight guys to the uh, NFL draft off that defense, an incredible 2021 defense. The reason some people out there think that that 2022 team could theoretically beat the 2021 team was because of how good that offensive line was a season ago where, you know, you have a guy like Amarius Mims who I think is going to be a first-round draft pick when it's all said and done. That's a guy that's coming off the bench for you. And it speaks to sort of the way that Kirby Smart has always wanted Georgia to be built. And to your point on Stacey Farrell, he's only continued to do that. And I think now he gets deeper into his time here at Georgia. You know, he's gone. Uh, this is his sort of second real recruiting class. We're sort of starting to see a trend in terms of what he looks for and what he wants. And the reality is he just wants the biggest dudes possible. Uh, you know, 247 updated some of their, their numbers, the weight numbers, after I had published my initial story uh, on sort of the offensive line, and so I did some recalculating. Uh, as it stands right now with what the height and weight numbers are, this is the biggest both in terms of height and in terms of weight offensive line that Georgia will have ever brought in under Kirby Smart, and that's not a coincidence in my opinion. Uh, it's not a great year for offensive line talent in general from a recruiting standpoint. That's sort of what we've been told. And so Stacey Farrell has said, well, we still got to sign guys that are capable of playing here. And so the fact that they went bigger uh, and went head-to-head quite a few times against Alabama, a few times against Texas, Michigan, Florida State, all one of some of the guys that Georgia has gotten, I think it speaks to what Farrell has been able to do and what Georgia has been able to sell in terms of their offensive line. So those past successful offensive lines have absolutely, in my opinion, led to the recruiting success that Stacey Saros has been able to bring in and continue in his time as the offensive line coach at Georgia. Do you think that there's a similar streak set to come here on the defensive side of the ball? I guess we now have a, a commitment date for Williams Winery. Uh, looks like they're right at the beginning of August for him. Obviously, folks looking ahead to K.J. Bolden there, too. Uh, you think about you know uh, Williams, the linebacker, who's uh, obviously the teammate of uh, uh, Jonah Janye. You know, how much of, you know, Georgia fans are obviously sort of building the anticipation that, okay, Georgia just cleaned house offensively along the offensive line. Now they're about to clean house defensively. How real and true do you think that can be? You know, as we sit here on what, today's July 11th, uh, look, if, 
uh, if they land all three of Justin Williams, the number one linebacker, KJ Bolden, number one safety, and Williams Narini, uh, the number one defensive lineman, well, we're going to need to check on you. We're going to need to ask people around <laughs> you. I don't know how we're going to be able to contain you. Uh, and just, I mean, again, you know, as impressive as this run was this past week, you know, let's not forget, they also have the number one cornerback in the country, in Ellis Robinson, and a guy yeah. who is, is every bit as good of a player. And quite frankly, I'm surprised, you know, I, on three, I guess, did the rankings update yesterday, and he's the number 11 overall player in the country for them, uh, for the industry, you know, sort of consensus. There are not 11, there are not 10 football players in the country better uh, than Ellis Robinson, in my opinion. So when you add all that up, look, this was supposed to be a class that was focused on the offense and sort of what Georgia was going to bring in there. And Nathan Frazier is a guy that I'm very interested in seeing how his recruitment ends up and where he ultimately ends up going. That is, I think, maybe in my opinion now, the most important guy left. But for a class that wasn't supposed to be so defensive-focused, if they go out and sign William Marini, uh, K.J. Bolden, Ellis Robinson, they already have Jonah Adroye, like, at a certain point, you know, we talk about how special that 2021 defense is, with what Georgia signed in 2023 and what they signed potentially in 2024, I mean, we're getting close to a time where maybe Georgia has a 2021 defense every single year just with the type of recruiting talent that they bring in. And as much as college football continues to skew to an offensive first game, and it's sort of been that way for, I don't know, at least a decade, maybe pushing on 15 years now, uh, Georgia's going to be competitive, and if they keep getting the best defensive players, they're not going to lose a whole lot. Let me finish with this. I talked about this to kick off the show here today. The fact that Ryan Day is still talking about uh, Marvin Harrison Jr. and and Javon Bullard and the Peach Bowl, and I mean, I think a lot of Georgia fans would characterize that as sort of whining. It has been, I think, a little bit weird for some Georgia fans to get used to how diminished some of the teams that I think Georgia fans would think is sort of a competition among equals, how diminished some of these programs are to the point where it almost seems like Ohio State's nostalgic about the fact they even kept it close against Georgia. And this is just sort of a weird place for UGA fans to be in. But in some respects, to me, Connor, it sort of demonstrates to the extent to which Georgia's laid waste to the rest of the sport. What do you make about the fact that, you know, once again, Ryan Day, I don't know if you saw this, but he was interviewed by Joel Klatt, and, uh, you know, Klatt asked him about it, and Day was more than happy to go on a long, drawn-out answer about it. Uh, what do you make about, make about the fact that, you know, this is just sort of added to the litany of excuses that seems to exist for coaches after getting beaten by Georgia the last two years? Yeah, I think Ryan Day knows how close he was to a national championship, and instead of using that, as, you know, quiet fuel for his team to sort of push them forward. Uh, he, he's maybe using it to, to say, hey, we should have won this. And look, you know, Ryan Day's got some issues, uh, in my opinion, in terms of he's lost two straight games to Michigan. I think on Michigan, if Michigan or Ohio State or, you know, I don't know what the sports books say right now, but Michigan, if they're not a favorite, it's going to be close because the game is played in Ann Arbor this year. And Michigan is, is equally talented as Ohio State is, in my opinion, despite, you know, Ohio State having better recruiting success. Uh, and, and so, you know, I, I think, it, and you can maybe lump Nick Saban in there, too. When you get that close to winning a national championship and you see that Georgia just very clearly isn't going to let up, you maybe do clutch a little bit closer onto, onto those pearls in terms of, yeah, we could have had a national championship if, if things went our way, if, you know, if Alabama's two-star receivers didn't both tear their ACLs. If, if Ryan Day had been able to, you know, to conduct a touchdown drive in the fourth quarter instead of only settling for a field goal there uh, and maybe have his defense get a stop in the second, in the fourth quarter there. So, 
you know, you, I understand why those guys feel so close and feel like they were that close to a national championship and, and why maybe they're holding on to that. But, uh, you know, I don't remember Kirby Smart after, you know, coming three plays away from winning a national title in 2017, sort of, griping about that game and griping about, you know, Tyler Simmons being on sides and whatnot. And so while fans certainly did that, and fans are to an extent always going to be different, fan is short for fanatic. And so I think that explains a lot of that there. When it's coming from a head coach, I think it tells me a little bit that they know that, like, Georgia, at least for the next couple of years, is going to be right there again and again and again. Sort of what Kirby Smart has done and what he came here wanting to do is always be in a position to keep winning and be in a spot to win titles. And so... When you're there every year like Georgia is, you're maybe not quite as annoyed by some of those breaks not going your way, whereas if you're in Ohio State or you're in Alabama in their current you know, state of mind, when you come that close and you realize, hey, it might be two, three years before you get a chance to get another crack at this, maybe you do clutch onto those a little bit closer. Yeah, I'll say this very quick because I've kept you long, but I think at some point in time, you know, somebody really smart needs to go back and sort of reconsider those first couple of years for Kirby Smart because I don't think there's any doubt that's smart in eight and five season in 2016 in 2017 the overall expectations for most people were not that high for Georgia and yet smart's demeanor back then I think laid the groundwork for the success they're enjoying right now the phrase act as if Kirby Smart was very good at acting as if as if he already was an accomplished football coach and is if and acting as if Georgia already was a program on a equal stature with anybody else and some of that behavior from Smart then was a part of the success they're enjoying now and I think a lot of other kind of relatively newish coaches I'll put Ryan Day in that category I don't think they're nearly as good as the act as if part of this you know Ryan Day just seems to behave in sort of a small way from time to time. I think a lot of the other coaches do too. I think Kirby Smart's way of putting himself on an equal footing with a coach like Nick Saban as quickly as he did, I don't think that's as easy as Kirby Smart made it look. Smart seemed to have some particular insight into the right kind of demeanor, even for a coach who had no experience for a program in Georgia that kind of been a little bit of an underachiever. You know, Kirby Smart just sort of brought a different kind of demeanor there. And at some point in time, I do believe that needs to be reconsidered. Right. I mean, I think you can even look at Billy Napier and sort of the way things are going for him at Florida right now. And, you know, we saw going into year two, you know, Florida's over-under is five and a half. Georgia, their second year under Kirby Smart, they were playing in the national championship game. Uh, And so, and look, they both inherited different situations. uh, But, you know, the the roster that Kirby Smart inherited from Mark Rick, it, it you know I'm not going to say it was exactly similar to what Dan Mullen was, but Dan Mullen found success in Florida, and so I I think and the reality is too, especially in a transfer portal era where flipping a roster is easier than ever, and you've seen teams get really aggressive in doing it. Uh, you know the whole no excuse mantra. Kirby has had that since day one. He was very upfront in that 2016 season that it was not good enough, losing to teams like Georgia Tech, losing to teams like Vanderbilt and made it very clear that this was not the expectation. And to Kirby's credit, he figured it out. He figured out the changes and tweaks that needed to be made, uh, and they weren't always popular or well-received at the time. But when he's needed to make changes and adapt, he's done so and he hasn't hesitated. You know, After the 2019 season, uh, I think a lot of people would have been willing to give James Coley a second season, uh, You know, just saying some of the things that happened that year uh, were maybe beyond the control of that offense. But but Kirby said no. We're gonna go out. We're gonna bring in Todd Munkin, and you know that was a big a big move, especially given how good of a recruiter Coley was for the program at the time. 
And, you know, that hiring of Todd Munkin uh, has really set, I think, a lot of things in motion for Georgia these last two years. And, look, when Munkin was taking the Baltimore Ravens job, Kirby once again didn't hesitate. He brought Mike Bobo and elevated him to be the offensive coordinator. Uh, you know, when things have moved around, he's been prepared. You know, we had Will Muschamp in a place where he was ready to step in and help the staff when that opportunity arose. And Muschamp similarly has been a, a big boost to this program, in my opinion. Dan Lanning leads to go be the head coach at Oregon. Uh, a very successful defensive coordinator for Georgia. Glenn Schumann simply steps up and keeps the machine going. And so I think that speaks to your larger point there, B.A., about Kirby, you know, having the right type of mindset uh, to be in place when the opportunity is there. And, and Georgia's done that. That's a big reason why they've won two straight national championships and are positioned to be potentially win a third straight unprecedented national championship. Connor, great stuff. We appreciate your time here today on Dog Nation Daily, presented by Engineered Solutions of Georgia. We'll look forward to reading some of that stuff that you said you had coming there at dognation.com. And, of course, talking to you back here on our program again very soon as well. Yep, as always, it was a pleasure. Let's take a look around the rest of the league. This is SEC Through. So a quick point here just for a moment. I was looking this up while Connor was talking. So to begin the 2017 season, it's just so hard to kind of go back and kind of put yourself in the present tense back then. You know, Georgia had been eight and five the previous year. And let me tell you something, as bad as the five were, the eight weren't all that pretty. Uh, there was a, a nice upset over a top 10 ranked uh, Auburn, who was a 10 point favorite, you know, double digit favorite, I think it was 10 points coming into Athens that year. That was a nice win for Georgia. But some of those wins were like nickels down to the wire. And there were some, you know, the, the five were pretty bad. The five losses, the eight wins weren't all that much to brag about, you know, back then either. It was not a very good season in 2016. Georgia to begin the 2017 season, I looked at the, the preseason AP poll just to try to get a reminder of myself. They were 15th in the country to, to begin that year. A lot of what we do on this show during the offseason is we kind of become a little bit of a repository of, so, uh, of sorts for like, hey, here's what people are saying about Georgia. You know, so-and-so said this, so-and-so said that, and sometimes we kind of argue back and forth about who's getting their takes about Georgia wrong. I can promise you, summer of 2017, leading that 2017 season, that kind of content was pretty hard to produce because during that particular time, no one was really saying anything about Georgia at all. Georgia just was not that relevant of a team. You know, moving into Kirby Smart's second year after an 8-5 and five year the year before, Georgia was just not top of mind, tip of the tongue, for most people who kind of talk college football now back then there weren't as many people talking the sport as there are now but nonetheless it was just one of those things where georgia just wasn't that relevant of a program and yet kirby smart was treating georgia the same way then that he treats it now and i do think from a leadership standpoint that's probably worth revisiting at some point is there's a very large vision being cast at that time and when you see the way in which other coaches and connor mentioned billy napier i mentioned ryan day and others this is not trying to be snarky because a lot of these guys may go on to eventually kind of find their own version of success. Some coaches succeed later. Dabo Swinney, it took him a while to become, you know, truly successful at Clemson, but no one can dispute two national championships. There's several templates potentially for how you could potentially become eventually become successful. But when you compare some of the newish coaches to Kirby Smart in his early days as UGA coach, there is a distinction about Kirby Smart that I think helps explain why he has been as successful as he has been. Now, let's get ready to go cruising around the SEC, courtesy of Royal Caribbean. And we are excited about a lot when it comes to uh, Royal Caribbean. I spent a little bit of time last night just thinking about Perfect Day Coco K. I was watching you know, some video stuff from Perfect Day Coco K because it's always one of my favorite things 
to do when I'm on a Royal Caribbean cruise vacation. And pretty much every search I begin for any kind of cruise vacation that I might take, when you think about future years or some of the ones I've taken over the course of the last couple of years, they, for me, always start with Perfect Day Coco Cay. It's the private island in the Bahamas, exclusive for those on a Royal Caribbean cruise vacation. And it's the thing to me that sets Royal Caribbean and its you know kind of cruise lines apart from everything else that you might see kind of competing with that during the cruise industry. There's nothing like Perfect Day Coco Cay. So when it came time to think about our next Dog Nation cruise, there was some discussion about what we might do. And I said, hey, let's make it bigger. Let's make it better. But let's make sure we still go to Perfect Day Coco Cay. To me, you got to make sure that's a part of what you're doing there and that's exactly what it's going to be so when you think about april of 2024 you think about us being on board allure of the seas you think about your opportunity now to be a part of that in fact can we show uh, the uh dog nation cruise thing for folks just so they get a chance to make sure they see that if they're watching on video our good friend jessica slater wants to help you out with this you can give her a call but you can also go to the website that she's put together it's royaldogs.com we're going to be on board allure of the seas now allure of the seas is a very special ship because it's one of the oasis class ships right now that's the largest class of ship sailing and allure of the seas makes the dog nation cruise for 2024 bigger and better than it's ever been we've already had a tremendous response to this and it's time for you to go ahead and book your dog nation cruise right now we've got some cabins secured some staterooms secured and once those are gone we have no more so it's not too soon to start thinking about this april 22nd through the 26th in 24 uh 2024 going to uh nasa on the bahamas perfect day coco Cay all kinds of incredibly themed dog nation events on one of the greatest largest ships at sea allure of the seas leaving out of port canaveral so go to royaldogs.com and find out more about that today all right a couple of recruiting notes here i want to get to as a part of our sec through uh let me begin with williams winary uh who obviously is a name of note and has been that way for uh georgia fans for quite some time uh, another player that Georgia would like to add to this 2024 class. And there's discussion last week about Joseph Jonah Ajanye. Uh, there was some thought, could that be a little bit of a precursor for what might eventually go down with williams Winery? Well, Georgia fans had already been excited about that and maybe now more excited about that after a recent bump that Winery got in the recruiting rankings on three, one of the recruiting services. And listen, I have a lot of friends that work for these recruiting services and all kinds of stuff like that. You could not pay me to do this job. Uh, I'm probably not you know, qualified to do the job anyway, but you could not pay me to do this particular job of here's who's going to rank here and who's going to rank there. Fans lose their mind about all that kind of stuff. And listen, as I said before, I've got a lot of friends who kind of work in this industry. i uh, got great respect for them. It is always kind of amazing to me, though, that the best thing for your recruiting ranking sometimes would seem to be being an uncommitted prospect. You see Dylan Riola. He has dropped in this recent on three re-rank. He's now only the number 11 player in their particular uh, ranking here. Yeah, I kind of wondered out loud on the show. You've probably heard me say this before. Would being committed eventually hurt Riola's recruiting ranking? He's dropped now to a number 11 right now. He's no longer the top quarterback in the recent on three re-rank. Julian Sayan is up there right now. That's not quite how Georgia's recruiting board had this, but uh, nonetheless, uh that's how on three has it for right now but uh uh Noary, uh moving up to the top here of the ranking for on three which sort of gives you an idea i believe the 24 7 sports has reported that uh williams when gonna make his commitment announcement coming up on august 1st so right there at that same
same span of time that you'll hear from KJ Bolden the fifth. You may hear from Nwari a, a little bit just before that, and now ranked as the number one overall player in the country, according to On3. Of course, he hails from Missouri, and uh, Missouri apparently is a big pursuer of him. Kind of reminds you of the Luther Burton recruitment from a couple of years ago. You sort of hope it doesn't have the same result. Uh, ultimately if you're UGA but uh this is a uh, battle that Georgia seemingly is very much a part of and now the stakes for this may have been raised a little bit more now that he is ranked at least by one recruiting service as the number one overall recruit in the country so keep your eye on what goes down here uh with uh George and Williams Nwari as you move towards all of that so uh George is going to try to make its big uh best attempt there <laughs> in that big recruiting battle moving forward shifting gears something else here for a moment we'll come back to recruiting here in a minute did you see where uh, Marco Wilson was on the Footballville podcast? We've referenced Footballville a couple times over the course of this uh, offseason. Uh, Wilson's father is actually one of the hosts on Footballville, and Marco Wilson was a guest. Wilson, of course, famous for the guy that actually started what became the golden shoe here on our show because he threw the shoe. <laughs> in the game against LSU back in uh, 2020 and uh, there you go that so so you see the golden shoe there on the shelf the golden shoe came to be and by the way thank you for that Michael if you're watching a video you see this of course the golden shoe came to be because of the Marco Wilson shoe throw well Wilson said this week on footballville that uh, basically he had no regrets about throwing the shoe if anything he'd throw it even farther this time than he did last time which you know on the one hand I think Marco's kind of always been a pretty good sport by this. You know, uh, he, he obviously knows this is the kind of thing that people laugh about. And so he's been willing to kind of be laughed at for this. He's even laughed along at time to time uh, about this. I think that Wilson's been a pretty good sport about all of this. But can you imagine being a Florida fan? And can you imagine a game that you lost to a team that you don't like very much in LSU, the Wilson shoe throw, a big part of that? And yet all these years later, Wilson shows seemingly no remorse for that whatsoever. <laughs> like There's an element of, of me as a uh, Gator hater that's amazed at sometimes how easy the Florida folks make it be to laugh at them for things like this. Uh, Marco Wilson, the ladies' example of that, Gators fans forced to gnash teeth over his unrepentant behavior uh i think that's a uh, pretty funny stuff uh, we'll actually have a little bit of a revisiting of this topic for our golden shoe coming up in just a little bit i think that's uh pretty pretty terrific uh on a more serious note northwestern has stepped up and fired pat fitzgerald uh its coach because of some reporting student newspaper i guess uh there in evanston uh, had this originally about the the a very extreme hazing that was alleged to have gone on with the Northwestern program. Eventually, uh, originally, I should say, the punishment for uh, Fitzgerald was supposed to be a two-week suspension, but I guess this has got more national attention. The uh, Northwestern leadership has now reconsidered that original idea, and now they've just flat-out fired Fitzgerald. He says he's taking legal action here. Um, here's what I'm going to say about this. We talked about this yesterday. Like, If these facts are true as they've been presented, then it is horrible. It is heinous, and it scares you to the extent to which that you know smart kids good athletes yet seem to be poorly developed from a character and integrity standpoint that kind of scares you and it kind of reminds you of the fact that's a really important thing uh that we need to make sure we still instill in you know young even successful young people good students good athletes making sure they have good character there as well because character is destiny no matter you know what kind of other credentials you might have you're you'll only go as far as your character allows you to go and if these facts as they've been reported are true then obviously that speaks to some tremendous character deficiency on the part of otherwise successful young men and that's serious and that's you know that that's concerning and yet it's also interesting to see the ways in which that some people seem to be a little 
skeptical of all of this. And, you know, some of the people who've been a little skeptical of some of the Northwestern reporting are not always the the favored, you know, people on the Internet, you know, famous personalities who, you know, certainly have their share of detractors, things like that. All I'll tell you is my antenna is up on this story uh, as it's been presented. Very, very, uh, very, very disturbing, disturbing facts, disturbing allegations, costing Pat Fitzgerald his job. A lot of people seem to, or at least a, a good portion of the people, even even people close to the story, seem to be not quite so sure the way that the predominant narrative has emerged exactly reflects the facts on the ground. I'm not close enough to Evanston, Illinois to know. I'm also not that interested to care. This story is going to disappear from my field of vision in the next few weeks. But it is interesting to see that a very you know, kind of thorough investigation went into this. The original conclusion was, you know, Fitzgerald needs the two week suspension. All of a sudden, more media attention on this. And now Fitzgerald's getting fired. Uh, my guess is we haven't heard the last of this one way or another. We have not heard the last of what's going on there at Northwestern. And I'll kind of leave that at that. But I will say this Georgia fans sort of have a way of making anything be about UGA recruiting in some respects. And one of the things you may have seen, I believe it was Steve Wiltfong from 24 seven sports who kind of tweeted this out. But the idea that Brian Hartline, the you know longtime wide receivers coach at Ohio State, and this is why Georgia fans care about it, uh, and he's now kind of gotten the promotion. He's essentially offensive coordinator uh, at Ohio State now. Although Ryan Day is the play caller, uh, Hartline's gotten the, you know the, the bigger promotion there. That maybe Hartline could be a candidate to become Northwestern head coach. Now I'm going to tell you right now, the reason why Georgia fans would be interested in that is because what's 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 the thing that Jeff Sintella said on our show over and over again every time he's joined us that if Georgia were to truly get back in on Jeremiah Smith, who's thought to be one of the very best players in the entire country, five-star wide receiver committed to Ohio State, the only way that Georgia would have a legit chance at Jeremiah Smith is if Brian Hartline left the Ohio State program. If he was gone, then maybe that might open the door for Jeremiah Smith. And so a lot of Georgia fans say, well, if, if Northwestern in the Big Ten has a job opening, maybe that's a job that Brian Hartline might take. Uh, Steve Wilfong even kind of amplifying that as an idea. I'm going to be a wet blanket here for a moment. I don't think there's any way Brian Hartline would take the Northwestern job. I guess the, you know, the the online chatter is the rumor mill would tell you that Hartline may have turned down the Cincinnati job here this year after Luke Fickle went to Wisconsin for big bucks. That's a program that's been in the college football playoff. It's moving into the Big 12. Cincinnati right now has a better job than Northwestern. Two very different colleges, of course. But Cincinnati right now, from a program standpoint, is better than Northwestern, and Brian Hartline turned to that down. So if Hartline is report, at least you know, uh, uh, speculatively turning down the Cincinnati job, and he's also probably likely to turn down the Northwestern job there as well, I think he has his eyes on something bigger, and I guess we'll wait and find out what that is. But I don't believe that Hartline's leaving for Northwestern. I do think someone will be interested in the Northwestern job because it is in the Big Ten. Fitzgerald had you know pretty good job security prior to this happening. You make decent money. You have decent job security. You are in one of the two leagues that matter more than the rest here right now. So someone of note is going to eventually want the Northwestern job, I believe, even with all the weirdness going on here right now. But I don't believe it's Brian Hartline. So for Georgia fans who are hoping this story might become a little bit of a in road to potentially get back involved with a guy like Jeremiah Smith. I guess I sort of find myself in the position of being a wet blanket on all of that. And we'll make that cruising around the SEC, courtesy of Royal Caribbean. So if you want to see the way in which the golden shoe algorithm sometimes just hits me right between the eyes, this is an example of that. Uh, Georgia on tab, one of the uh, great 
people in the uh, sort of Dog Nation online community here since this <laughs> kind of combining two stories uh, that definitely kind of get me. So here's the original story about Marco Wilson on the shoe throw saying that he would 100% do it again. He'd probably throw it even farther this time. We'll correct the uh, Florida grad here that uh, correct grammar would be farther, not further when it comes to that. But 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 nonetheless, uh, we would, we don't try to be you know too heavy handed with the academic stuff. But nonetheless, uh, Wilson says that uh, he would throw it 100 farther this time. George on tap showing Pete Alonzo after the game against the Braves of the day, where he said throw it again. Yeah, combining Alonzo, the former Gator, with the lousy, stinking Gator, Marco Wilson. Very good golden shoe there by George on tap. We will give that to him indeed. And by the way, speaking of those lousy, stinking Gators, uh, how about 109 days from right now? Georgia back in Jacksonville. No shoes will be thrown, but Pete Alonzo will have reason to cry again. By the way, got beat up in the home run derby last night. You love to see that. And you love to see Georgia beating Florida 109 days from now. We will see all of you back here tomorrow. Dog Nation Daily, presented by Engineered Solutions of Georgia.